On today's episode, we dive into how the Bavarian Illuminati and World War II propaganda can inspire you to create successful marketing strategies with your current crowdfunding project. We'll also take a look at how we can use things like humor and puns or a deep dive into the unique theming of your project to drive success. Let's get into it. Game begin. Let's go. Go back to the shadow. You shall not fail. Crowdfunding notes. Amazing. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. Andrew's still not with us, but I'm joined today by Jacob, who is our Facebook ads extraordinaire. We both work on Facebook ads, and we figured that we would dive into some marketing techniques that we have recently uh, been thinking about or, or discovered, and hopefully that there'll be something in here that you can take away and apply to your context. But before we jump in, Jacob, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's glad to be back. I probably should mention as well, I'm Sean. <laughs> Forgot to mention that if you haven't listened before. So Jacob, you've been running uh, quite a few ad accounts simultaneously as so as I've been doing so as well. Yeah. Is there anything that through all these different types of ad accounts uh, that sticks out to you, but maybe before we even get into that, maybe talk about the different types of ad accounts because we have like different goals with ad accounts, right? So maybe you want to break break that down in terms of the different kinds of ads you're running, and maybe that's probably going to impact the different messaging that we have. Yeah, we I'm running quite a few different ad accounts. Primarily, we see at least for me three main different uh, ad types that we're doing and. One of those is, is pre-marketing ads, uh, which is a build-up to your Kickstarter or crowdfunding launch to where we're trying to build out your email list and followers. Uh, then we have live ads, which would be ads that we are running once you are actively uh, in a crowdfunding campaign. And the goal a lot of times with those ads is to get people to your crowdfunding page and try to convert them into backers. And then the last one would be e-commerce ads. Is Once your product has been is finished, whether it's gone into late pledge or it is available for purchase now uh, and working to try to drive sales through a web store. And then when it comes to Facebook as a platform and Instagram, what, what do you think Facebook is best at in terms of those three different periods of someone's advertising journey? What do you think, where do you think Facebook really shines? Uh, I would say Facebook is really great for the pre-marketing side of things. Um, I think it's a lot easier to track some of your results uh, with your pre-marketing uh, ads as we're typically trying to monitor leads. Uh, and typically for us, what we define as a lead would be someone that becomes a subscriber, usually through your landing page. Um, and Facebook does a pretty good job of being able to allow us to track uh, those conversions. So I feel like with a lot of pre-marketing ads, it's you get a, a quicker turnaround in analyzing what's working um, and what's not working as opposed to some of the other ad types. It's not quite that the visibility is there. Um, I think the visibility is great across whether you're doing pre-marketing or live ads uh, or e-commerce, um, but being able to track the success of some of your metrics is 
easier when you're in the pre-marketing stage as opposed to some of the others. Um, and that can be due to a couple different factors. Um, while you're live, um, Facebook will allow us to, we can input a Metapixel onto a Kickstarter page and try to track conversions that come from ads. But due to all kinds of different, whether it's security measures uh, on your on your browser uh, that may block reporting a, a, a conversion as coming from an ad, uh, or a lot of people will follow an ad to a page, be really excited about what they see, but then they'll mark it as watch for later and they'll come back at the 48 hour mark or they'll go talk to um, a spouse or their friends or their gaming group and see who's doing what. And then they'll come back and back it later. So they may have come to your, the Kickstarter page from an ad, but they didn't convert immediately. And so we don't necessarily see whether that conversion uh, happened right at that point in time, even though the ads were probably responsible for their conversion to your project. And then e-commerce is a, a little bit easier. We can track some of the purchases that are coming in. But some of those, because it's based on, on, on a direct sale, we may it can kind of be a little bit limited, especially if you only are offering one product on your web store and that some of the conversions are not necessarily quite as high or as immediate um, as you would expect coming in from a pre-marketing standpoint where there's no commitment to buy, you're just signing up for an e-mark uh, for an email list or a live campaign where you're you're jumping in and you kind of have some time to wait and see what you're getting with the product. With the e-commerce, you're kind of more or less jumping in and making a decision right away. Um, and so some of those conversions are not necessarily as immediate or in quite the level of numbers that you see um, when you're live on Kickstarter. So the ads may be successful. They are generating sales, but you may not necessarily be seeing sales on a super high volume, especially if the number of products that you're offering is is limited. Yeah, and we've actually recently done some internal changes to our pricing structure when it comes to e-commerce for smaller projects because it is much harder to make those accounts profitable because of limited inventory. And I think this has a lot to do with just the behavior of people who use Facebook. A lot of people who are on Facebook and Instagram aren't there to purchase. The, so the, the buyer intent is quite low compared to something like Google or Amazon, where people are searching for solutions to, you know, for products and services that can help them do something. Um, so there, this is why uh, search ads on Google could be quite lucrative if you were to <laughs> use that as targeting for your uh, e-commerce store. Sure. But on Facebook, people are trying to discover new things. I think this is why we see greater success in terms of email capture because people are, oh, here's a new thing that looks interesting. I'm going to sign up for my email and then I'll get more information as as things progress. So Facebook actually is quite suited to the Kickstarter model, uh, particularly for this pre-marketing stage because it's a bunch of people looking for new stuff or the latest thing and sure. being able to provide that. And I think this is why it's also important that your ads are very clear and it's almost like an announcement. Here's this latest thing. So it's like the you know, dystopian cyberpunk board game, you know, and so people know what it is. I think that is going to make people say, oh, I'm interested. I'm going to look into this or keep scrolling. Yeah, I think Facebook in a lot of ways, it is kind of the modern window shopping um, mm -hmm. where you're kind of going by and you're wanting the the best and brightest and newest things are all kind of set out in display for you to, to check out. 
Um, or I almost think about just because my kids had recently been doing it. Uh, you get the Amazon Christmas like toy catalog in the mail uh, every year, right before Thanksgiving and all of that kind of stuff. And my kids will sit down and look through all of the newest and hottest toys or whatever and take their markers and their circling things that, <laughs> that they like. Um, and obviously like they don't, they don't have the buying power to jump into purchasing uh, a product, but it is kind of akin to that with Facebook. I think a lot of consumers are looking and they're really easily captured by what grabs their interest quickly. And it's like, Oh, it's the equivalent of let me circle this to show it to, to mom and dad. It's, it's sort of let me enter my email list so that I get that reminder later so I can learn more about this. And then I can kind of evaluate whether I want to make that purchase at a later time. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of things that you've noticed since, since joining us, has there, any been, has there been anything that stuck out as being particularly effective and whether it is certain messaging or whether it's certain imagery or has there any, been any kind of marketing technique that you've really been able to hone in on? Sure. I think there's a few different things. Uh, some that were surprising to me, um, we had actually had a discussion a couple of weeks ago about table presence. And when we were talking with Joe Slack um, about some of the, the different ways of or better performing ads and that sort of thing. And one of the things that had shocked me uh, was how effective sometimes it can be to have like just simple unboxing videos that are shot with a cell phone camera um, or images of people actually just sitting at a table and playing the game and looking like they're having a good time. Uh, they're not necessarily like crazy professional photos, but I think that we, we had kind of discussed that I think we've kind of become so conditioned to seeing ads when we are online that when we see something that is not quite as professionally polished, but shows real individuals interacting with a product in a authentic way, that that on that authenticity a lot of times can be more effective in getting someone to click on an ad than if you have a super hyper polished image. Um, and again, like we said, we, it's not that there's not a place for that. I think with any product, you need to be able to have professional imagery of your game. You need it to look good because if it doesn't look good, that's, that's definitely a detractor to getting someone's attention. But I think when it comes to seeing the human interaction element, I think I had kind of underestimated how important the, the level of human interaction with a product um, affects someone clicking through um, on an ad. Um, apart from that, I think some of it, it's more my personality. Um, maybe it's, I have three children and so I'm in full blown like dad joke mode. Um, <laughs> but I think I've found that, that a lot of times if you can have fun with some of the headlines uh, that people enjoy or respond well, um, to puns and witty, uh, witty headlines. Um, I think if you're able to, to have a little bit of fun with how you talk about your product, uh, I've seen some of those headlines perform better than something that sounds a little bit more artificial. So having it, I mean, not every product is going to lend itself to be marketed that way. You do have some mm -hmm. products that have a more adult tone or a darker tone and they just don't quite convey that way. But if your product is a little bit more on the lighter whimsical side, I think maybe that's the better statement is to embrace or really lean into 
the theme of your game or the the feel that you want people to have. If it's intended to be a lighthearted game or something that is played fast in 30 minutes, then have fun, be really snappy, throw in some puns um, with, with your, with your headlines. If it is something that's like a lot more dark and, and, and broody or a lot more intense, like really lean into trying to visualize what that looks like. Uh, I think we had Sean, you worked with time Lancers some as well and really playing up this like dystopian time traveling, you know, corrupt future wealthy business leaders that are manipulating the time stream for their benefit. Um, and you kind of did a great job. Sounds of like present day. Yeah. <laughs> you created these really atmospheric headlines that I think did a lot to make you read the headline and feel like you were already kind of invested in that world um, before you've even learned anything else about the product. Well, that's interesting in terms of using humor, because that's not something I have personally experimented with too much. So can you, could you give an example of a particular head, headline, maybe for a particular game that just worked really well, that had a humorous pun? I know we did joke we didn't use it with a game, but we had a game about classical musicians. Uh, and you could choose from like Mozart or Beethoven or all of these other individuals that you could play. And so we had a we we made a joke within the the headline about I'll be Bach, uh, and just play off of the composer's name and <laughs> action amazing. movies. Uh, I don't know that we necessarily actually went went through with that because it was a little bit different tonally than what the visual aesthetic was for the game. But I, I, yeah, I do think using humor is important. I, I'm, I'm just reminded of an ad I saw recently. I took a screenshot of it because it was quite funny, and it was a very bad image. It was li- literally created on Microsoft Paint. A very crudely drawn kind of meme and it was, it was about game developers living at home in their basement in their mom's basement and it was like help us get out of our mom's basement and check out our game and uh when you go to it, it took you to steam but the game was like super polished so it was just it was funny how they were using humor to sure. direct people to to steam so i think it's just an example it's not an example that comes from us but it was just something that i saw and I thought, oh, that's that's a very clever way of um, engaging people that's different yeah okay here's one that i had um we had a like a farm themed game uh, at one point in time and um you're building out all these different livestock and one of the primary texts that we used was don't be sheepish get a move on and build an excellent farm in the barnyard board game for the whole family <laughs> Um, so it was basically just really trying to lay into a lot of different kind of pun oriented kind of things that we could, uh, associate with the, the vibe of the game. Um, and people tend to like emojis a lot as well within some of the headlines. Uh, I think just having sort of that visual, um, can help to grab someone's attention. Um, so we used a bunch of like pig and sheep and chicken, emojis, uh, eggs, things like that, um, to add a little bit of visual flair as well. In addition to your wording. Um, I think that was something too, that I hadn't really keyed on as much that has been a bigger player, um, was that a lot of times headline text that used emojis got more clicks than headline text that just simply used punctuation. Okay, that's interesting because I, I tend to avoid um, emojis in the headlines simply because the character spacing is 
quite competitive. So if you're adding an extra character, you're very limiting on what you can communicate. And as far as I remember when A-B testing, I haven't seen too much of a difference. But that's interesting that if you're seeing that recently, that it might be worthwhile for me to incorporate some of it again into my headlines because I don't yeah. tend to do do so um, unless it's something that is quite short. Like now on Kickstarter, I do like a little explosion emoji for or sure. something. I do think it is definitely better when you've got an already short headline. I don't know that I would necessarily necessarily sacrifice character space just to have the emojis. Um, but if you have something that is shorter or even something that's a little bit more simple as far as a headline text goes, um, having a visual element with that I've seen has, at least with a couple of my campaigns, has shown to have greater interaction than some of my like non-included headlines. Interesting. Is there, is there anything else that uh, has stuck out to you in terms of what has worked well recently? I think some of it is to think a little bit outside of the box within the targeting. I think sometimes we do find that if you can be general with your targeting audience, that can oftentimes be effective. Um, if you're if you're creating a board game, uh, you know, just targeting a general crowdfunding audience and a board game interest audience oftentimes will produce some solid results. Um, but jumping into things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily have thought of um, to include within the targeting sometimes leads to, to much better results. I think like even with union stockyards advertising and trying to target like barbecuing crowds mm-hmm. um which is not uh, something I way, think which it's, just, it's a game about a, a i suppose a meatpacking facility from the 1800s so it's uh, or the early 1900s um so sure. yeah a lot of meat packing so with okay well meats and barbecue kind of go together together and yeah it worked out quite well that targeting sure uh and sometimes even just like diving into if you can create a connection across genres. So even with like film, uh, for example, um, when we've had time traveling games, um, considering targeting individuals that have an interest in time traveling movies, uh, Interstellar, mm-hmm. um, Looper, Looper, uh, even more comedic films like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, um, Back to the Future. Um, but being able to make some of those cross genre jumps oftentimes, uh, helps to create or to get into some of those individuals that, you know, there are a lot of board gamers that are, and just general gamers that are out there. But if you're creating something that's in a space that is, um, that is very niche, sometimes tying into that niche appeal, um, will help attract backers that maybe are not normally um, in that broader, broader audience. Yeah. I often find when it comes to the targeting that often the, the most kind of obvious can be the most unobvious. <laughs> Sometimes I think why not target these people? This is perfect. Like, I don't know, sure. board games and cypherpunk for a particular game. Like this is like the perfect combination. Why didn't I think of this before? And usually if you can kind of make it as simple as possible, who are the ideal people for this and try really hone in and hone in on that is going sure. to be super helpful. Another thing is focusing on location. 
um, not location in terms of the where the ads are targeted, like oh, we're targeting people in the US, but location in terms of interests. So, uh, for example, Union Stockyards, it, it's about the Union Stockyard in Chicago. So we've had found success targeting people who have interests in Chicago and board games because it's a board game about Chicago. So that's just an example. You might your game might be set in medieval Europe, so you might find people who have interests in medieval Europe or Europe. That will so location can also be like where is your game set and targeting people with interest in that location. So I know we once had a game that was kind of like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle style game based in New York. So we we targeted people who had interests in New York because obviously the game has a lot of kind of iconic buildings and it's based in New York. So you might find people that uh, who are into board games that also live in New York or have interest in New York can. Um, yeah, a happy marriage there. So that's, I think, another interest that which you often wouldn't think about. Um, now, obviously, this isn't going to apply to all games. Some games are set in the future or in made-up lands. But uh, if your game is set on a, a real-world location, so that's something that you should certainly try targeting. Absolutely. We saw that with uh, Kavango, which is a game that we recently did that was about building out uh, wildlife reserves. Um, and the the game creators, that's their, their job. They live part-time in Botswana. Um, or maybe it's even full time, um, but they were inspired by a lot of different uh, wildlife conservatories throughout the continent of Africa. So even we created specific targeting, like with some of those game reserves or with wildlife expeditions, um, and saw a high return from those uh, from those targeted ad sets. Yeah, it's quite clever because there's going to be people who have been on safaris. And they want to kind of remember that experience. Oh, here's now there's a board game that can help me remember my past experience of going on safari. So it's, a, it's an interesting, and it could be the same with these locations. People who've been on holiday to Japan, suddenly there's a Japanese styled board game. It's going to remind me of my, my time in Japan or whatever. So I think that's why the location can be helpful because it's a way of connecting people's past experiences with the brand or product. That's going to help them connect with it and and influence their ability to to make a sure. decision to back or purchase in the future. Sure. Um, and I think maybe one of the next things that I, I would say I've learned, and maybe this is just general advice, is um, really lean into what makes your product unique or why should someone care about your product over another, um, especially for me, because I do tend to be a big theme-oriented individual when I'm looking at games. There are definitely just certain themes that I'll gravitate more towards than others. Um, I think if you've got some uniqueness to your theme, really lean into into that. Union Stockyards is a great example. I know we keep bringing that up. Um, but there's not a whole lot of games about animal, the meat trading industry. It's a very unique, uh, unique theme. Um, and so lean into that. Um, whereas on the flip side, like we do see a lot of fantasy themed products and mm -hmm. uh, I love fantasy themed products. So I, I'm definitely like the prime target, you know, market for a lot of those games, but there are a lot of them. Uh, there's a whole lot of them. So what can you lean into? What are you showing off that is a little bit unique, more unique about your particular fantasy genre that you're kind of targeting is a, a certain character type that's a break from tradition or is the setting 
of your fantasy world slightly slightly different um and being able to show off those unique assets within your your visual offerings will definitely create more effective conversions because i do think there are a lot of people even if you are primed to be that target audience there is sometimes an oversaturation of particular themes that it really takes leaning into the unique offerings of your particular product uh, to really get some of those tough sales to get someone to convert to follow through to become a backer yeah it reminds me of a campaign we did a, a while ago was about dice and they had all these different die sets but they had one particular die set that glue in the dark it's like oh these are the ones you have to market and we basically solely focused on their glow in the dark die sets and they just crushed it uh, far more than any anything else that we tried I mean, we kind of focused the entire advertising around these glow in the dark die sets because or so unique and they just stood out as soon as you scrolled and you saw them glow in the dark in these kind of pictures uh, you know people were like i want this so i think there's an yeah. example where you have dice which are super common but these dice are doing something very unique that they they glow in the dark which is which is cool for sure cool so i've i've been learning things as well but i i try if you've listened to past episodes i'm a big believer in reading various books or encountering various materials which are outside of direct marketing advice. So reading books on history or philosophy or psychology, and then taking those ideas and bringing them into what you're trying to do. Because if you think about what advertising seeks to do, it's essentially a form of behavior modification. The goal is to try and change someone's behavior. It's, it's to try and convince them to take a certain action or do something. So understanding human behavior then becomes really important for the marketer. And there's obviously good applications of this or wholesome applications of this. And then there's obviously destructive or bad applications of this. One being propaganda, right? Propaganda very clearly has a political emphasis that is designed to get people to believe certain things so that they will do certain things. There's this kind of, uh, insidious nature to propaganda so it's like a dirty word um, and that's why the word propaganda was changed to public relations <laughs> so if you have a public relations department in uh, your company or if you know of oh a P this is a pr person that they're basically a propagandist like that's the word was um, changed by a guy called edward bernays who created the pr public relations department because of the the bad taste that propaganda received really during world war ii and so I've been spending a lot of time looking at World War II because it's really where I suppose propaganda kind of just was mastered, I suppose, mastered by the Allies, mastered by the, the, the Nazis, uh, the communists and, and Russia used propaganda. So if you, if you can look at something like propaganda, which is a, you could say an evil or insidious way of behavior modification, you can learn things about it and you can either say, okay, well, there's an element here that I can apply in, in a positive sense to what I'm trying to do in terms of marketing my game. But there's also an element where, okay, if this is the evil way of doing it, if I invert this, does do I have a productive way of, of, of doing this? So I've, I've been going, that's a bit of a rabbit hole. And um, one book I actually read, and I was surprised to find a marketing tid tidbit in it. And it's a book about the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, here's, here's my, here's the marketing advice I got from the Bavarian Illuminati. 
for those who don't know, because there's a lot of memes around that the Bavarian Illuminati or the German Illuminati was it an actual secret society that was uncovered by the King of Bavaria that was trying to overthrow the, the German government at, at its time, led by a guy called Adam Weissap, who was a university pr- professor, I think in the University of Ludwig. And eventually he, his society and his agenda was uncovered and uh, the the group was uh, dissipated or, or fo- you know, foiled. But uh, I suppose the conspiracy is, well, they, they still survived and they just changed their names. <laughs> Actually, the, the book I'm reading argues that, says that they, they went into reading societies, and uh, which is interesting because they used like mail order, which is I kind of felt like a lot like email marketing. But we kind of do this today where people would like, it was like a, a subscription that people signed up for. They'd get a you know, certain newsletters. And then if they wanted more information, they had to do certain things, take certain actions. And this is how they kind of went up the kind of pole of secrecy and what this, these reading societies were actually about, uh, which is we kind of use these techniques today, right? Where if someone's opening more emails, we send them more communications. If people are engaging on your social media posts, you engage with them more than you would other people. And you're kind of rewarding, um, which I suppose it comes comes out of behavioral science with you know, Skinner that you're kind of reinforcing certain behavior types. You're rewarding people for taking certain actions. But anyway, back to Adam Weissap and the Bavarian Illuminati. Uh, here's a quote he says about controlling humans through the use of mysteries or leveraging mysteries. I thought this was really interesting. <laughs> now, obviously, you could say, well, this is good or bad or whatever. But I, I think I'm, I want you to think about the principle here and how can you apply this to uh, your your games? And we maybe can discuss this. So I'm going to quote this. So I'm, this is an excerpt from a book called Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All the Religions and Governments of Europe by a guy called John Robinson. He wrote it in 1797. And uh, he claims to have uh, kind of encountered folks from the society and uh, had received certain uh, ma- manuscripts or whatever. It's, it's an interesting read, whether it's, it's true or not. Uh, but I, here's a quote supposedly from Adam Weissap on the use of mysteries to control people. So quote, of all the means I know to lead men, the most effectual is a concealed mystery. The hankering of the mind is irresistible. And if once a man has taken into his head that there is a mystery in a thing, it is impossible to get it out either by argument or experience. And then we can so change notions by merely changing a word, but more contemptible than fanaticism, but call it enthusiasm. Then add the little word noble and you may lead him over the world. So he's he's saying just tweaking language. So if someone's a fanatic, you don't call him a fanatic. You just say he's enthusiastic. And then if you add this little word called noble, he's 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 nobly enthusiastic when you've completely changed the perception of this fanatic. Um, so I thought it was interesting. This kind of like the, the tweaking of language to change people's perceptions. And, but then also this use of uh, a mystery that, uh, so I'll, I'll continue the quote because um, I'm, I'm not finished here. Um, so, nor are we in these bright days a bit better than our fathers who found the pardon of their sins mysteriously contained in a much greater sin, leaving their family and going barefoot to Rome. So I think this is an allusion to the, the pilgrimages of the Middle Ages. Um, so he's, he kind of, he's kind of saying that um, he's lamenting that people left their families to chase a mystery and mysteries can be very powerful in controlling people's behavior. And then he used mysteries himself. <laughs> sure. So yeah, it's this idea that there's something hidden. There's something that, uh, for whatever reason, it it's like, oh, what's inside the box? And I think you even see this with like J.J. Abrams' films. They they the mystery box. 
analogy and like, oh, tune in next time. So sure. I think there's a, there's a marketing element here that, that people can glean is that, is there a way in which you can use some type of mystery or concealment of information to get to engage people? Um, obviously not in some weird kind of secret society way, but <laughs> more in a, a playful way. But there's a principle sure. here, which I think people can tap into is that, um, ooh, what's around the corner? What, what, uh, join our, our Facebook group because we've got this mystery that we're going to uncover. This, this piece of information that you can only get inside your Facebook group. And then using this, like, if, even think about the whole Kickstarter experience is, is really the unveiling of a mystery. It's, oh, here we are. Um, here's little bits and, and pieces of the game and campaign before it's released. And then suddenly you, you reveal the entire campaign, all the pledge levels are there. So this is sort of, built into the the systems of Kickstarter, but just to be aware of that, are there ways or systems in which you can better leverage uh, this kind of, I'd say, innate desire of people to uncover what is hidden? So um, that's my marketing techniques I've learned from the Bavarian Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've seen some real world application with some of that with some successful Kickstarters where there's a promise of like sign up and receive a mystery gift or uh, something along those lines where there's kind of a, a tag or a lure on the end of uh, a call to action to where it's like, oh, well, I want to see what we get. Or it's uh, come take a venture here and find out what is really going on in the world of whatever. Um, and so I think there is, it is definitely play up on, I think, people's innate sense of curiosity that it can be I always kind of laugh. There's a, there's a family guy quote where, uh, they're, they're talking about, uh, he, he goes to one of these like marketing shows and they're like, uh, he, he's been saving money. He wants to buy a boat. And, uh, the sales is like, you can, you can buy a boat or you can buy what's in the mystery box. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, I want to, he was like, Oh, the mystery box. And they're like, but you really want a boat? Just buy the boat. And he was like, but the mystery box could be anything. It could even be a boat. And so there's this, there's this thing where it's like playing on, it's such a stupid example, but it is sort of that innate curiosity that if you hide something behind a thin veneer, it doesn't have to be anything super fancy, but people's innate curiosity a lot, a lot of times will <laughs> encourage them to, to want to know what that is just for the sake of knowing what that is. Yeah, which is it's quite dangerous because it's a way that you can actually make people act irrationally, which I think is what Adam Weishap is, is getting here. People leaving their families and going to Rome on pilgrimage is sort of irrational when you've got a family to look after, uh, chasing a mystery. Um, so it can be dangerous, this, this application, but it, it, it obviously has its, its applications in, in other ways. And I think as marketers, as people trying to promote our games, I, I don't know what you think about this, Jacob, but... I think it's very important that we don't use gimmicks uh, or for things sure. which are, are clearly gimmicks. Like, oh, you know, sign up for your email and ooh, there's going to be a mystery to be. You know, I think you're going to be kind of very intelligent of how you sure. how you do this and do it in a way that is quite uh, tactful. For because sure. we, we, we have had people ask, oh, I've seen, you know, people ask for like paying a dollar to get, um, you know, early access uh, into something and then they get a discount. I'm like, yeah, okay, you can set that up. And I understand the psychology behind that where your people are sort of invested. They've made a transaction with you. It's more likely they'll make a second transaction with you. But there's a part of me that always feels like that's a little bit gimmicky. 
And I see sure. people could it could rub people the wrong way where they could they could see right through that. Or this is clearly just a marketing gimmick, it's a marketing technique. And I think you want to be very careful of anything that kind of comes across as being like that, being a gimmick. So I, don't, I think when we, we point out examples of using mystery to build intrigue and get people to take action, it probably is going to vary depending on people's projects. I don't think there's going to be, oh, just do this one thing or here's the formula for it. Right. It's going to be something you have to adapt to your own process and, and your game. But the overall principle is something you can keep in mind and just knowing that, oh yeah, you can create some allure, some mystery and have a bit of fun with it. For sure. I think maybe one of the more uh, reasonable and this is very entry-level applications uh, that does kind of play into that kind of mystery or mystique is even just the sense of asking a question within part of the headline. Um, While that's not necessarily the same as a mystery, you're doing something that is begging a response of the individual that's viewing it. So it can be something as simple. I think we do this a lot. A lot of times we'll create a a set of headlines where it is like it's the, you know, the cyberpunk dystopian board game, but we might also use a a headline that's like, how will you change the future or how will you change the past? Um, To where it's not necessarily like a major mystery, but it's the phrasing itself by phrasing it as a question immediately sort of starts to get the viewer, maybe even subconsciously to start thinking about their answer to that question. So you're getting them to engage with the ad a little bit differently than just telling them what it is, mm-hmm. um, which I think kind of maybe falls a bit into that line of what you're what you're talking about of trying to create some sort of mystique. Is it doesn't necessarily have to be as big as hiding some grand revelation, but just asking a question of the viewer to try to get them to respond. And a lot of times I think it's like, well, you know, how will you forge your fate in the land of wherever? Uh, They might click on the ad because then they're like, well, what does that land look like? Maybe I want to know what it's like. Like, what would I do um, if I were in this situation? Um, Or like when it is like, how would, how would you rewrite the past? Uh, They might click on the ad to see, well, what events are we talking about that I have the opportunity to alter within the scope of the, the game? So I think using something as simple as uh, asking questions or creating a compelling question line within some of your ad copy um, can spark some additional interaction. Yeah, because it makes it personable, right? It's putting them inside of the game. And we call it the thematic challenge. So you you raise this thematic challenge and how will you overcome this problem and you're trying to almost invoke the feeling. What will it feel like once you overcome this this challenge? Because that's really what gaming is. It's we're offering an experience and to try and encapsulate that, even in a small way, I think is important uh, for, for people. And, you know, one thing that if you start looking at World War II propaganda, you'll notice there's a huge emphasis on feelings, not on the rational. Again, this could be used this could be misappropriated and used to manipulate people, which we certainly don't want to do. But there is a there is a, an emphasis where we do want to focus on feeling, but I think it has to be accompanied by reason later on because people need to have a good reason. <laughs> you know, you, you've got to be able to For demonstrate sure. through social proof or through playthroughs and, and other things which are more objective than just kind of 
you know, assertions that kind of generate people's emotions and, and feelings. So I think propaganda would just focus on feelings, but what we try to, what we try to do is, yeah, we want feelings to kind of lure them in, but then we have to then deliver something that's actually reasonable and rational for people so that they, they, they do get excited and then jump in, um, with all the more fervor. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's benefits in learning, um, hit from history and you can take some elements and, and apply them to your marketing. So I, yeah, it's just uh, my kind of aged old advice is uh, to continue to read interesting things. And um, so I'm going to continue to do and share them here. But um, yeah, if you have any interesting insights of things that you've learned, you'd like to share that maybe have come from kind of left or like strange locations or out of field things, then uh, make sure to share them in the crowdfunding nerds community. We'll include a link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Jacob, you want to end with anything? Um. Yeah, I, I would just say I would follow up and agree with your point. I think one of the one of the biggest things that we can do to help push our success is to constantly have an attitude of wanting to learn or being open to new ideas. I think, especially with a lot of the the games and stuff that we produce, they're immediately a passion project for us, and I think we expect you know great success with any idea that we run with. Um, but I think it's one of those things like if you allow yourself to look outside the box or be challenged to approach things slightly differently than maybe you had been thinking, uh, that you might find more creative ways to reach audiences that you hadn't exactly considered or thought about. Um, and I do think that's one of the benefits of reading is that you're putting yourself in a position to constantly be learning and to expose yourself to individuals, especially outside of the field that you're coming from. Um, because I do think there is a lot of benefit from, uh, like you had mentioned that you're reading a lot of books on like, whether it's philosophy or history, um, that we wouldn't maybe necessarily assume has a direct correlation to what we're doing. Uh, but the more you get into it, it's your, your mind starts to, to pull from those things like, Oh, I could, I could make something work here. I had never considered something that way. Uh, so I think it's sort of one of those things, having an attitude of on, of always wanting to be a learner, um, kind of that sort of always a student, never a teacher kind of thing. And in a lot of ways that you're, you're always putting yourself in a position that I can learn something that I didn't know before today, um, I think will goes a long way towards, uh, helping drive your success. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you have a crowdfunding question, we also have a page on our site where you can send a message directly to us. Please visit crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question. And if your question is a great question, we may include it in a future podcast. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.